Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com Support for more information. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tonight, I continue the story of Black Beauty. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 18 Going for the Doctor One night, a few days after James had left, I had eaten my hay and was lying down in my straw fast asleep when I was suddenly roused by the stable bell ringing very loud. I heard the door of John's house open and his feet running up to the hall. He was back again in no time. He unlocked the stable door and came in, calling out, Wake up, beauty, 
You must go well now, if ever you did. And almost before I could think, he had got the saddle on my back and the bridle on my head. He just ran round for his coat and then took me at a quick trot up to the hall door. The squire stood there with a lamp in his hand. Now, John, he said, ride for your life. That is for your mistress's life. There's not a moment to lose. Give this note to Dr. White. Give your horse a rest at the inn and be back as soon as you can. John said, yes, sir. I was on my back in a minute. The gardener who lived at the lodge had heard the bell ring and was ready with the gate open. And away we went through the park and through the village and down the hill till we came to the toll gate. John called very loud and thumped upon the door. The man was soon out and flung open the gate. Now, said John, do you keep the gate open for the doctor? Here's the money. And off he went again. There was before us a long piece of level road by the riverside. John said to me, Now, beauty, do your best. And so I did. I wanted no whip nor spur. And for two miles I galloped as fast as I could lay my feet to the ground. I don't believe that my old grandfather, who won the race at Newmarket, could have gone faster. When we came to the bridge, John pulled me up a little and patted my neck. Well done, beauty, good old fellow, he said. He would have let me go slower, but my spirit was up, and I was off again as fast as before. The air was frosty, the moon was bright, it was very pleasant. We came through a village, then through a dark wood, then uphill, then downhill, till after an eight miles run, we came to the town, through the streets and into the marketplace. It was all quite still, except the clatter of my feet on the stones. Everybody was asleep. The church clock struck three as we drew up at Dr. White's door. John rang the bell twice and then knocked at the door like thunder. A window was thrown up and Dr. White in his nightcap put his head out and said, What do you want? Mrs. Gordon is very ill, sir. Master wants you to go at once. He thinks she will die if you cannot get there. Here is a note. Wait, he said. I will come. He shut the window and was soon at the door. The worst of it is, he said, that my horse has been out all day and is quite done up. My son has just been sent for and he's taken the other. What is to be done? Can I have your horse? He's come at a gallop nearly all the way, sir, and I was to give him a rest here. But I think my master would not be against it, if you think fit, sir. All right, he said. I will soon be ready. John stood by me and stroked my neck. I was very hot. The doctor came out with his riding whip. You need not take that, sir, said John. Black Beauty will go till he drops. Take care of him, sir, if you can. I should not like any harm to come to him. No, no, John, said the doctor. I hope not. And in a minute, we had left John far behind. I will not tell about our way back. The doctor was a heavier man than John and not so good a rider. However, I did my very best. The man at the toll gate had it open. When we came to the hill, the doctor drew me up. Now, my good fellow, he said, take some breath. I was glad he did, for I was nearly spent. But that breathing helped me on, and soon we were in the park. Joe was at the lodge gate. My master was at the hall door, for he had heard us coming. He spoke not a word. The doctor went into the house with him, and Joe led me to the stable. I was glad to get home. My legs shook under me, and I could only stand and pant. I had not a dry hair on my body, 
the water ran down my legs, and I steamed all over, Joe used to say, like a pot on the fire. Poor Joe. He was young and small, and as yet he knew very little, and his father, who would have helped him, had been sent to the next village, but I'm sure he did the very best he knew. He rubbed my legs and my chest, but he did not put my warm cloth on me. He thought I was so hot I should not like it. Then he gave me a pail full of water to drink. It was cold and very good, and I drank it all. Then he gave me some hay and some corn, and thinking he had done right, he went away. Soon I began to shake and tremble and turned deadly cold. My legs ached, my loins ached, and my chest ached, and I felt sore all over. Oh, how I wished for my warm, thick cloth as I stood and trembled. I wished for John, but he had eight miles to walk, so I lay down in my straw and tried to go to sleep. After a long while, I heard John at the door. I gave a low moan, for I was in great pain. He was at my side in a moment, stooping down by me. I could not tell him how I felt, but he seemed to know it all. He covered me up with two or three warm cloths and then ran to the house for some hot water. He made me some warm gruel, which I drank, and then I think I went to sleep. John seemed to be very much put out. I heard him say to himself over and over again, stupid boy, stupid boy, no cloth put on, and I dare say the water was cold too. Boys are no good. But Joe was a good boy after all. I was now very ill, a strong inflammation had attacked my lungs and I could not draw my breath without pain. John nursed me day and night. He would get up two or three times in the night to come to me. My master too often came to see me. My poor beauty, he said one day, my good horse. You saved your mistress's life. Yes, you saved her life. I was very glad to hear that, for it seems the doctor had said if we had been a little longer, it would have been too late. John told my master he never saw a horse go so fast in his life. It seemed as if the horse knew what was the matter. Of course I did, though John thought not. At least I knew as much as this, that John and I must go at the top of our speed and that it was for the sake of the mistress. Chapter 19 Only Ignorance I do not know how long I was ill, Mr. Bond, the horse doctor, came every day. One day he bled me. John held a pail for the blood. I felt very faint after it, and I thought I should die. And I believe they all thought so too. Ginger and Mary Legs had been moved into the other stable so that I might be quiet, for the fever made me very quick of hearing. Any little noise seemed quite loud, and I could tell everyone's footstep going to and from the house. I knew all that was going on. One night, John had to give me a draft. Thomas Green came in to help him. After I'd taken it and John had made me as comfortable as he could, he said he should stay half an hour to see how the medicine settled. Thomas said he would stay with him, so they went and sat down on a bench that had been brought into Maryleg's stall and put down the lantern at their feet that I might not be disturbed with the light. For a while, both men sat silent, and then Tom Green said in a low voice, I wish, John, you'd say a bit of a kind word to Joe. The boy is quite broken-hearted. He can't eat his meals, and he can't smile. He says he knows it was all his fault, though he is sure he did the best he knew. And he says if Beauty dies, no one will ever speak to him again. It goes to my heart to hear him. 
I think you might give him just a word. He's not a bad boy. After a short pause, John said slowly, You must not be too hard upon me, Tom. I know he meant no harm. I never said he did. I know he's not a bad boy. But you see, I'm sore myself. That horse is a pride of my heart, to say nothing of his being such a favourite with the master and mistress. And to think that his life may be flung away in this manner is more than I can bear. But if you think I'm hard on the boy, I will try to give him a good word tomorrow. That is, if beauty is better. Well, John, thank you. I knew you did not wish to be too hard, and I'm glad to see it was only ignorance. John's voice almost startled me as he answered, Only ignorance? Only ignorance? How can you talk about only ignorance? Don't you know that it is the worst thing in the world, next to wickedness? And which does the most mischief, heaven only knows. If people can say, oh, I did not know, I did not mean any harm, they think it is all right. I suppose Martha Mulwash did not mean to kill that baby when she dosed it with Dolby and soothing syrups, but she did kill it and was tried for manslaughter. And it served her right too, said Tom. A woman should not undertake to nurse a tender little child without knowing what is good and what is bad for it. Bill Starkey, continued John, did not mean to frighten his brother when he dressed up like a ghost and ran after him in the moonlight, but he did. And that bright, handsome little fellow that might have been the pride of his mother's heart is just no better than an idiot, and never will be if he lives to be eighty years old. You were a good deal cut up yourself, Tom, two weeks ago, when those young ladies left your hothouse door open, with a frosty east wind blowing right in. You said it killed a good many of your plants. A good many, said Tom. There was not one of the tender cuttings that was not nipped off. I shall have to strike all over again, and the worst of it is that I don't know where to go to get fresh ones. I was nearly mad when I came in and saw what was done. And yet, said John, I'm sure the young ladies did not mean it. It was only ignorance. I heard no more of this conversation, for the medicine did well and sent me to sleep. And in the morning I felt much better. But I often thought of John's words when I came to know more of the world. Chapter 20 Joe Green Joe Green went on very well. He learned quick and was so attentive and careful that John began to trust him in many things. But, as I have said, he was small for his age, and it was seldom that he was allowed to exercise either Ginger or me. But it so happened, one morning, that John was out with Justice in the luggage cart, and the master wanted a note to be taken immediately to a gentleman's house about three miles distant, and sent his orders for Joe to saddle me and take it, adding the caution that he was to ride steadily. The note was delivered, and we were quietly returning till we came to the brickfield. Here we saw a cart heavily laden with bricks. The wheels had stuck fast in the stiff mud of some deep ruts, and the carter was shouting and flogging the two horses unmercifully. Joe pulled up. It was a sad sight. There were the two horses straining and struggling with all their might to drag the cart out, but they could not move it. The sweat streamed from their legs and flanks, their sides heaved, and every muscle was strained while the man, fiercely pulling at the head of the forehorse, swore and lashed most brutally. Hold hard, said Joe. Don't go on flogging the horses like that. The wheels are so stuck that they cannot move the cart. The man took no heed, but went on lashing. Stop, 
Pray stop, said Joe. I'll help you to lighten the cart. They can't move it now. Mind your own business, you impudent young rascal, and I'll mind mine. The man was in a towering passion, and the worse for drink, and laid on the whip again. Joe turned my head, and the next moment we were going at a round gallop towards the house of the master brickmaker. I cannot say if John would have approved of our pace, but Joe and I were both of one mind, and so angry that we could not have gone slower. The house stood close by the roadside. Joe knocked at the door and shouted, Hello, is Mr. Clay at home? The door was opened, and Mr. Clay himself came out. Hello, young man. You seem in a hurry. Any orders from the squire this morning? No, Mr. Clay, but there's a fellow in your brickyard, flogging two horses to death. I told him to stop, and he wouldn't. I said I'd help him to lighten the cart, and he wouldn't. So I've come to tell you. Pray, sir, go. Joe's voice shook with excitement. Thank you, my lad, said the man, running in for his hat, then pausing for a moment. Will you give evidence of what you saw if I should bring the fellow up before a magistrate? That I will, said Joe, and glad too. The man was gone, and we were on our way home at a smart trot. Why, what's the matter with you, Joe? You look angry all over, said John, as the boy flung himself from the saddle. I am angry all over, I can tell you, said the boy. And then, in hurried, excited words, he told all that had happened. Joe was usually such a quiet, gentle little fellow that it was wonderful to see him so roused. Right, Joe. You did right, my boy, whether the fellow gets a summons or not. Many folks would have ridden by and said twas not their business to interfere. Now, I say that with cruelty and oppression, it is everybody's business to interfere when they see it. You did right, my boy. Joe was quite calm by this time. I'm proud that John approved of him, and he cleaned out my feet and rubbed me down with a firmer hand than usual. They were just going home to dinner when the footman came down to the stable to say that Joe was wanted directly in the master's private room. There was a man brought up for ill-using horses, and Joe's evidence was wanted. The boy flushed up to his forehead, and his eyes sparkled. They shall have it, said he. Put yourself a bit straight, said John. Joe gave a pull at his necktie and a twitch at his jacket, and was off in a moment. Our master, being one of the county magistrates, cases were often brought to him to settle, or see what should be done. In the stable we heard no more for some time, as it was the men's dinner hour, but when Joe came next into the stable, I saw he was in high spirits. He gave me a good-natured slap and said, We won't see such things done, will we, old fellow? We heard afterwards that he had given his evidence so clearly, and the horses were in such an exhausted state, bearing marks of such brutal usage, that the carter was committed to take his trial, and might possibly be sentenced to two or three months in prison. It was wonderful what a change had come over Joe. John laughed and said he had grown an inch taller in that week, and I believe he had. He was just as kind and gentle as before, but there was more purpose and determination in all that he did, as if he had jumped at once from a boy into a man. Chapter 21 The Parting I had now lived in this happy place three years, but sad changes were about to come over us. We heard from time to time that our mistress was ill. The doctor was often at the house, and the master looked grave and anxious. Then we heard that she must leave her home at once and go to a warm country for two or three years. The news fell upon the household like the tolling of a death bell. 
Everybody was sorry, but the master began directly to make arrangements for breaking up his establishment and leaving England. We used to hear it talked about in our stable. Indeed, nothing else was talked about. John went about his work, silent and sad, and Joe scarcely whistled. There was a great deal of coming and going, and Ginger and I had full work. The first of the party who went were Miss Jessie and Flora, with their governess. They came to bid us goodbye. They hugged poor Merrylegs like an old friend, and so indeed he was. Then we heard what had been arranged for us. Master had sold Ginger and me to his old friend, the Earl of W., for he thought we should have a good place there. Merrylegs had been given to the vicar, who was wanting a pony for Mrs. Bloomfield, but it was on the condition that he should never be sold, and that when he was past work he should be shot and buried. Joe was engaged to take care of him and to help in the house, so I thought that Mary Legs was well off. John had the offer of several good places, and he said he would wait a little and look around. The evening before they left, the master came into the stables to give some directions and to give his horses the last pat. He seemed very low-spirited. I knew that by his voice. I believe we horses can tell more by the voice than many men can. Have you decided what to do, John? He said. I find you have not accepted either of those offers. No, sir. I've made up my mind that if I could get a situation with some first-rate colt breaker and horse trainer, it would be the right thing for me. Many young animals are frightened and spoiled by wrong treatment, which need not be if the right man took them in hand. I always get on well with horses, and if I could help some of them to a fair start, I should feel as if I was doing something good. What do you think of it, sir? I don't know a man anywhere, said the master, that I should think so suitable for it as yourself. You understand horses, and somehow they understand you. And in time you might set up for yourself. I think you could not do better. If in any way I can help you, write to me. I shall speak to my agent in London and leave your character with him. Master gave John the name and address, and then he thanked him for his long and faithful service. But that was too much for John. Pray don't, sir. I can't bear it. You and my dear mistress have done so much for me that I can never repay it. But we shall never forget you, sir. And please, God, we may someday see mistress back again like herself. We must keep up hope, sir. Master gave John his hand, but he did not speak, and they both left the stable. The last sad day had come. The footman and the heavy luggage had gone off the day before and there were only master and mistress and her maid. Ginger and I brought the carriage up to the hall door for the last time. The servants brought out cushions and rugs and many other things, and when all were arranged, master came down the steps carrying the mistress in his arms. I was on the side next to the house and could see all that went on. He placed her carefully in the carriage, while the house servants stood round crying. Goodbye again, he said. We shall not forget any of you. And he got in. Drive on, John. Joe jumped up, and we trotted slowly through the park and through the village, where the people were standing at their doors to have a last look and to say, God bless them. When we reached the railway station, I think Mistress walked from the carriage to the waiting room. I heard her say in her own sweet voice, Goodbye, John. God bless you. I felt the rain twitch, but John made no answer. Perhaps he could not speak. As soon as Joe had taken the things out of the carriage, John called him to stand by the horses while he went on the platform. Poor Joe. 
he stood close up to our heads to hide his tears. Very soon the train came puffing up into the station, then two or three minutes, and the doors were slammed to. The guard whistled, and the train glided away, leaving behind it only clouds of white smoke and some very heavy hearts. When it was quite out of sight, John came back. We shall never see her again, he said. Never. He took the reins, mounted the box, and with Joe drove slowly home. But it was not our home now. Part 2 Chapter 22 Earl's Hall The next morning after breakfast, Joe put Mary Legs into the mistress's low chaise to take him to the vicarage. He came first and said goodbye to us, and Mary Legs neighed to us from the yard. Then John put the saddle on Ginger and the leading rein on me, and rode us across the country about fifteen miles to Earlsall Park, where the Earl of W. lived. There was a very fine house and a great deal of stabling. We went into the yard through a stone gateway, and John asked for Mr. York. It was some time before he came. He was a fine-looking middle-aged man, and his voice said at once that he expected to be obeyed. He was very friendly and polite to John, and after giving us a slight look, he called a groom to take us to our boxes and invited John to take some refreshment. We were taken to a light, airy stable and placed in boxes adjoining each other where we were rubbed down and fed. In about half an hour, John and Mr. York, who was to be our new coachman, came in to see us. Now, Mr. Manley, he said, after carefully looking at us both, I can see no fault in these horses, but we all know that horses have their peculiarities as well as men, and that sometimes they need different treatment. I should like to know if there's anything particular in either of these that you would like to mention. Well, said John, I don't believe there's a better pair of horses in the country, and right grieved I am to part with them, but they are not alike. The black one is the most perfect temper I ever knew. I suppose he has never known a hard word or a blow since he was foaled and all his pleasure seems to be to do what you wish. But the chestnut, I fancy, must have had bad treatment. We heard as much from the dealer. She came to us snappish and suspicious, but when she found what sort of place ours was, it all went off by degrees. For three years, I've never seen the smallest sign of temper, and if she is well treated, there's not a better, more willing animal than she is. But she is naturally a more irritable constitution than the black horse. Flies tease her more. Anything wrong in the harness frets her more, and if she were ill-used or unfairly treated, she would not be unlikely to give tit for tat. You know that many high-mettled horses will do so. Of course, said York, I quite understand. But you know it is not easy in stables like these to have all the grooms just what they should be. I do my best, but there I must leave it. I'll remember what you've said about the mare. They were going out of the stable when John stopped and said, I had better mention that we have never used the check rein with either of them. The black horse never had one on, and the dealer said it was a gag bit that spoiled the other's temper. Well, said York, if they come here, they must wear the check rein. I prefer a loose rein myself, and his lordship is always very reasonable about horses. But my lady, that's another thing. She will have style, and if her carriage horses are not reined up tight, she wouldn't look at them. I always stand out against the gag bit, and shall do so, but it must be tied up when my lady rides. I am sorry for it, very sorry, said John, but I must go now, or I shall lose the train. 
He came round to each of us to pat and speak to us for the last time. His voice sounded very sad. I held my face close to him. That was all I could do to say goodbye. And then he was gone. And I have never seen him since. The next day, Lord W. came to look at us. He seemed pleased with our appearance. I have great confidence in these horses, he said, from the character my friend Mr. Gordon has given me of them. Of course, they are not a match in colour, but my idea is that they will do very well for the carriage while we are in the country. Before we go to London, I must try to match Baron. The black horse, I believe, is perfect for riding. York then told him what John had said about us. Well, said he, you must keep an eye to the mare and put the check rein easy. I dare say they will do very well with a little humouring at first. I'll mention it to her ladyship. In the afternoon we were harnessed and put in the carriage, and as the stable clock struck three, we were led round to the front of the house. It was all very grand, and three or four times as large as the old house at Birtwick, but not half so pleasant, if a horse may have an opinion. Two footmen were standing ready, dressed in drab livery with scarlet breeches and white stockings. Presently we heard this rustling sound of silk as my lady came down the flight of stone steps. She stepped around to look at us. She was a tall, proud-looking woman and did not seem pleased about something, but said nothing and got into the carriage. This was the first time of wearing a check rein, and I must say, though it certainly was a nuisance not to be able to get my head down now and then, it did not pull my head higher than I was accustomed to carry it. I felt anxious about Ginger, but she seemed to be quiet and content. The next day at three o'clock, we were again at the door, and the footman as before. We heard the silk dress rustle, and the lady came down the steps, and in an imperious voice she said, York, you must put those horses' heads higher, they're not fit to be seen. York got down and said very respectfully, I beg your pardon, my lady, but these horses have not been reined up for three years, and my lord said it would be safer to bring them to it by degrees. But if your ladyship pleases, I can take them up a little more. Do so, she said. York came round to our heads and shortened the rein himself. One hole, I think. Every little bit makes a difference, be it for better or worse, and that day we had a steep hill to go up. Then I began to understand what I had heard of. Of course I wanted to put my head forward and take the carriage up with a will, as we had been used to do, but no. I had to pull with my head up now, and that took all the spirit out of me and the strain came on my back and legs. When we came in, Ginger said, Now you see what it is like. But this is not bad, and if it does not get much worse than this, I shall say nothing about it, for we are very well treated here. But if they strain me up tight, why, let them look out. I can't bear it, and I won't. Day by day, hole by hole, our check reins were shortened and instead of looking forward with pleasure to having my harness put on, as I used to do, I began to dread it. Ginger, too, seemed restless, though she said very little. At last, I thought the worst was over. For several days there was no more shortening, and I determined to make the best of it and do my duty, though it was now a constant harass instead of a pleasure. But the worst was not come. Chapter 23 a strike for liberty. One day, my lady came down later than usual, and the silk rustled more than ever. Drive to the Duchess of Bees, she said. And then after a pause, are you never going to get those horses' heads up, York? 
Raise them at once, and let us have no more of this humouring and nonsense. Yorick came to me first, while the groom stood at Ginger's head. He drew my head back and fixed the rein so tight that it was almost intolerable. Then he went to Ginger, who was impatiently jerking her head up and down against the bit, as was her way now. She had a good idea of what was coming, and the moment York took the rein off the turret in order to shorten it, she took her opportunity and reared up so suddenly that York had his nose roughly hit and his hat knocked off. The groom was nearly thrown off his legs. At once they both flew to her head, but she was a match for them, and went on plunging, rearing, and kicking in a most desperate manner. At last, she kicked right over the carriage pole and fell down, after giving me a severe blow on my near quarter. There is no knowing what further mischief she might have done, had not York promptly sat himself down flat on her head to prevent her struggling, at the same time calling out, Unbuckle the black horse, run for the winch and unscrew the carriage pole, cut the trace here, somebody, if you can't unhitch it. One of the footmen ran for the winch, and another brought a knife from the house. The groom soon set me free from Ginger and the carriage and led me to my box. He just turned me in as I was and ran back to York. I was much excited by what had happened, and if I'd ever been used to kick or rear, I'm sure I should have done it then. But I never had, and there I stood, angry, sore in my leg, my head still strained up to the turret on the saddle, and no power to get it down. I was very miserable and felt much inclined to kick the first person who came near me. Before long, however, Ginger was led in by two grooms, a good deal knocked about and bruised. York came with her and gave his orders, and then came to me. In a moment, he let down my head. Confound these check reins, he said to himself. I thought we should have some mischief soon. Master will be sorely vexed. But there, if a woman's husband can't rule her, of course, a servant can't. So I wash my hands of it. And if she can't get to the Duchess's garden party, I can't help it. York did not say this before the men. He always spoke respectfully when they were nearby. Now he felt me all over and soon found the place above my hock where I had been kicked. It was swelled and painful. He ordered it to be sponged with hot water and then some lotion was put on. Lord W. was much put out when he learned what had happened. He blamed York for giving way to his mistress, to which he replied that in future he would much prefer to receive his orders only from his lordship. But I think nothing came of it, for things went on the same as before. I thought York might have stood up better for his horses, but perhaps I am no judge. Ginger was never put into the carriage again, but when she was well of her bruises, one of Lord W.'s younger sons said he should like to have her. He was sure she would make a good hunter. As for me, I was obliged still to go in the carriage and had a fresh partner called Max. He had always been used to the tight rein. I asked him how it was he bore it. Well, he said, I bear it because I must, but it is shortening my life, and it will shorten yours too, if you have to stick to it. Do you think, I said, that our masters know how bad it is for us? I can't say, he replied, but the dealers and the horse doctors know it very well. I was at a dealer's once, who was training me and another horse to go as a pair. He was getting our heads up, as he said, a little higher and a little higher every day. A gentleman who was there asked him why he did so. Because, he said, people won't buy them unless we do. The London people always want their horses to carry their heads high and to step high. Of course it is very bad for the horses, but then it is good for trade.
the horses soon wear up or get diseased and they come for another pair. That, said Max, is what he said in my hearing, and you can judge for yourself. What I suffered without rain for four long months in my lady's carriage, it would be hard to describe, but I'm quite sure that had it lasted much longer, either my health or my temper would have given way. Before that, I never knew what it was to foam at the mouth, but now the action of the sharp bit on my tongue and jaw and the constrained position of my head and throat always caused me to froth at the mouth, more or less. Some people think it is very fine to see this and say, what fine-spirited creatures, but it is just as unnatural for horses as for men to foam at the mouth. It is a sure sign of some discomfort that should be attended to. Besides this, there was a pressure on my windpipe, which often made my breathing very uncomfortable. When I returned from my work, my neck and chest were strained and painful, my mouth and tongue tender, and I felt worn and depressed. In my old home, I always knew that John and my master were my friends, but here, although in many ways I was well treated, I had no friend. York might have known, and very likely did know, how that rain harassed me, but I suppose he took it as a matter of course that it could not be helped. At any rate, nothing was done to relieve me. Good night.